Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Dylan Scott, you report on healthcare at Vox, and you live in Maryland, but but we're going to talk about Australia today. Why? Well, Sean, I have been trying to live vicariously through some Australians that I know, because as of last week, Melbourne, one of the biggest cities in Australia, has been COVID-free for a month. For four full weeks, there have been zero active cases of COVID-19 in the state of Victoria, of which Melbourne is a part. And I know from my, you know, days of geography that Melbourne is relatively close to New Zealand, which also has done really well. But are Australia and New Zealand just uniquely positioned because they're so far away from all the COVID catastrophes to just weather the storm better? I mean, look, it certainly helps Australia and New Zealand even more so that they are islands, in the case of Australia, really, really big island. You might even call it a continent. And They don't have any land borders to speak of. If they shut down international travel, then suddenly nobody is coming into the country and bringing COVID with them. And so that certainly gives them some advantages in combating COVID-19 that the United States does not enjoy. But I think what's notable about Melbourne's experience is that they kind of screwed up too. They, much like the U.S., when COVID was first popping up earlier this year, uh, you know, they went into lockdown. They put restrictions on international travel. They asked people coming into the country to quarantine. uh, And they tried to tamp out the virus immediately. And at first, their numbers started to look pretty good. You know, the few cases that they had started to dissipate. There weren't new cases coming into the country. Uh, And so it, it looked like things were under control and they started easing some of those restrictions. Businesses starting opening back up. The same kind of stuff that we saw in the U.S. in the late spring and early summer. But suddenly in Victoria and in Melbourne, cases started to spike again. And so, you know, context again is important. Their version of a spike is a lot different from our version of a spike. Because nobody does it like we do, right, Dylan? Nobody does it bigger or better than the U.S., and that continues to be true. Um, But, you know, they they saw about, you know, at their worst moments, they started seeing, like, 700 new cases a day, which is, like, potentially the recipe for, like, an outbreak that's spinning out of control. But, you know, by comparison, I, I did some, like, some quick 
eyeball math, and I, I pegged Missouri as maybe the best state to compare Victoria to in terms of land size and its population. And right now, Missouri is seeing something like 3,000 new cases every day. So even at its absolute worst moment, uh, Victoria and Melbourne were not experiencing nearly as much COVID spread as the U.S. has been for the last few months or even over the summer. But nevertheless, you know, they saw a second wave coming and they decided, like, we really need to do something. And we, like, we don't want to go through this, like, yo-yoing of there's a spike and then we lock down and then the numbers go down and we open up and then there's a spike and we lock down and then the numbers go back down and we start to open back up again like and they decide like we need to act obviously like even though their cases never got as high as they did in the US you know that is the recipe for an outbreak that could spin out of control and so they decided that they needed to do something dramatic what did they do They came up with a plan that would end with zero active COVID-19 cases. Their plan was to just get rid of COVID-19? Yeah. They decided that they would eventually eradicate it. That sounds like a great plan. How's it going? They've done it. By the end of November, Melbourne and the greater state of Victoria had had zero active COVID cases for a full month. COVID-19 just doesn't exist there anymore. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so this isn't New Zealand where they're just benefiting from being extremely remote and having, I don't know, functional government. This is, we had a second wave, we took a step back, we looked at it, and we came up with a plan to just bring our cases down to zero? Yes, zero. And it was hard. And it it was a very detailed plan. It took months for them to get there. It required a lot of sacrifice by the people who lived there. It was controversial, you know? There were protests. People, anti-lockdown protests popped up there, just like we've seen in the United States, you know? Sometimes the political leaders would kind of hem and haw, like, oh, well, you know, like, we have this plan, but, like, we're not trying to eradicate it. We're trying to aggressively suppress it or whatever. But, like, if you looked at the plan, they came up with a vision for how to get to zero COVID cases. And as tumultuous as it was, they reached that end destination, and now they get to enjoy living in a world where there's no COVID-19. Well, let's hear how they did it, because I want to imagine a world where there's no COVID-19, and I bet a lot of our listeners do, too. How did they get there? How did they get to zero, Dylan? So what I think is interesting about Melbourne is, like, they didn't do anything that we don't already know to do. They ramped up their testing. They did like not only testing of people who are symptomatic or maybe exposed, but they started doing pool testing where you just start randomly testing people out in the community to see if there's any spread that you're not picking up on through some of the more conventional testing methods. Once they got down to zero cases, they started texting sewage because that's one of the first places uh, that COVID can show up and it can be a leading indicator that maybe spread is picking back up again. They ramped up their contact tracing. So if you know people went to a public venue, they had to like scan their phones so that if it turned out that there was a case that could be linked back to that place, people would be notified and they could be isolated. I mean, they were turning around tests in like 48 hours, which I think to a lot of people who might be trying to get tested in the United States around the holidays sounds glorious, but totally unachievable because we're waiting more like five days. And, you know, the virtue of getting a test result back in a day or two instead of five is that like people aren't going 
traveling around waiting for their test results and spreading COVID to people. But I mean, the real core of what they did was they locked down, you know, businesses closed with the exception of certain places like supermarkets. People initially during the the first stages of the lockdown, people were required to stay within five kilometers of their house. Their borders were shut. And so like there was a long period where there wasn't anything to do in Melbourne but stay home, go to the grocery store, and you couldn't even like, you know, drive to the other side of town to go to a park. You had to stay right in your neighborhood. And that's certainly why some of these provisions were were contentious. You know, uh, there's always going to be a group of people who doesn't want to be told you can't leave your neighborhood. But I think, you know, because they had a clear plan that had this like tiered approach, like the end destination is zero cases. But in the meantime, you know, if we can bring cases down to a certain level, then certain businesses can start to open back up. And if we bring it down a little further, then public transportation can open back up as long as you wear masks. And it was kind of this gradual approach with these clear benchmarks along the way, all the way down to zero. And I think because they had such a clear plan and communicated these goals to the public, they were able to get a lot of buy-in. So as you know, controversial and contentious as it was at times, the vast majority of the population bought in, and that's what it takes to get COVID-19 under control. Dylan, it sounds like all these steps you're talking about aren't like unfamiliar sorcery. It's like what we know works. Yeah, there was nothing particularly novel about what Victoria did. They just committed to the plan that works. And they communicated to the public what they were doing, why they were doing it, and what could happen if they saw improvements. If you're telling people like, look, we can go back to having businesses open and public transportation open if we hit these certain case thresholds, then I think that gives people a lot of motivation to follow the rules, right? You would hope. You would think. And I mean, the proof is in the pudding, right? They've gotten there. Zero cases for four weeks. What I took away from Melbourne's experience is if you give people something to work towards so that they really understand why we're doing what we're doing, it's not just an indefinite, we're going to lock down and we'll see what happens. There's some specific goals that I think that helps build a lot more buy-in, but that's unfortunately not something that we've seen in the U.S. And I think that at least helps to explain why we've struggled so much with our COVID response. Okay, Dylan, let's take a quick break, and then I want you to explain to me whether it's too late for the United States to try something like this. It is, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. We'll keep that. Okay. Support for Che Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. 
Planned Parenthood believes that healthcare is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. My name's Eloise Shepard. I'm from Melbourne in Australia. And uh, we've had 40 days with no coronavirus cases. We've gone from being restricted to five kilometres within our radius, within our home, to being able to exit that ring of steel. So now uh, school has returned for my kids. Um, for my younger children, they can go to childcare. We're able to return to cafes. We can eat indoors at cafes, at restaurants. And I was surprised how much I missed the gym. <laughs> now it's open again. I'm not going, but, you know. <laughs> Life is, is pretty normal. Dylan, before we took a break, I asked you if it was going to be too late for the United States to try just eradicating COVID-19. And I wanted you to answer the question now, but you already kind of did. And you said, it is? It is. Nobody thinks it's realistic for the United States to get down to zero cases anytime soon. I don't have the data in front of me, but like we're reporting hundreds of thousands of cases every day and thousands of deaths. Like a 9-11 worth of um, yeah, death. As many people dying in one day uh, from COVID-19 as died on 9-11. Like, the situations are just completely different. And I don't think that there's any realistic way to get down to zero until the vaccine is, is widely distributed and we start building up immunity in the population. That being said, is there something we can learn from what they did in the city of Melbourne and in the state of Victoria? That is, I think, the lesson. The lesson is less go for zero as a, a policy proposal that largely mirrored what the Victorian government ended up doing called it. And it's more that like, you got to give people a goal. You've got to commit to, you know, the mitigation measures that we know work, testing, tracing, social distancing, wearing masks. And, and by doing that, like you can build the kind of solidarity that it takes for people to be willing to make sacrifices in their own lives to help, you know, control the spread and maybe benefit not only themselves, but people that they'll never meet. I think we fleetingly had that in the United States back in the spring, especially at the worst of it in New York City. I remember, you know, I had a friend send me something that like when I was kind of down, he sent me, I think it was like a meme. Maybe it was a real billboard. Maybe it was fake. It doesn't matter. But he was, it was something along the lines of like, you know, every empty storefront you see, every empty sidewalk, empty playground, like that is that is solidarity. That is people making sacrifices, you know, holding back from what they want to do to benefit everybody else. And so, you know, I think there was a time, there was a moment when this kind of strategy might have been palatable in the U.S. But clearly, you know, very quickly, 
our COVID response became very polarized. We started to see, you know, differences between Democrats and Republicans and how willing they were to wear masks. We saw differences between democratically led states and Republican led states in the social distancing and mask policies that they put into place. And it pretty quickly devolved that solidarity disappeared. And, you know, I don't have to tell anybody listening to the show what we've been living through for the last six months. So my hope would be, you know, maybe, maybe this winter surge is already so bad and it's only going to get worse. The lesson from Melbourne is you need to give people something to work towards. You can't just tell them we're going to lock down for six weeks and see what happens. You got to give them a goal because, you know, that's just human nature, right? Being indefinitely cloistered in your house is, of course, going to sound untenable to everybody who's already feels like they've been doing that for the last nine months. But, you know, you tell people, like, if we can get our case numbers down to here, we can start doing X, Y, and Z, then maybe that gives people a little bit more motivation uh, to cooperate. And so, like, you know, I'm not a policymaker. I'm just a guy on a podcast. But I think, and, and experts say this too, like, Victoria did two important things. First, they actually like took the mitigation steps necessary that we all know work. Testing, tracing, mask wearing, social distancing. But they also gave people clear goals, clear objectives, and something to work towards. And again, like, would that work in the U.S.? Who knows? I can't say for sure. I can't say that the last year has given me a ton of optimism uh, that we can all get on the same page again. But... Melbourne did it. They have zero COVID cases now. Uh, I emailed a health policy professor there, you know, asking some questions about their plan. He emailed me back and said, I'm sorry, you know, I was out at lunch with some friends and I didn't see this until now. And that's the kind of life that they get to live because they committed to this plan. And you wrote back, go fuck yourself. I said, like, take me there, actually. (laughs) Do you think, I mean... (sighs) You know, we most recently compared Australia to the United States um, on Election Day on this show where we talked about how voting is mandatory there and turnout's a lot higher, um, obviously. But I-, I wonder, in this case specifically, if if we're talking about apples and oranges here a little bit, if if there's this very distinct sort of sense of personal liberty and and individual freedoms in the United States that they just don't have down under that's going to prevent everyone from getting on the same page, be it now or even nine months ago when these initial lockdowns and shutdowns happened? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. And it's obviously a thing that's sort of impossible to quantify. I will say, like, you know, the Aussies are not conformists. You know, this was an island that started as like a refuge for prisoners, right? (laughs) Do they like it when you remind people of that? It's just the truth, okay? But like, you know, Aussies are not conformists. You know, there's a strong individualistic streak in Australia, just like there is in the United States. But I do think they have a shared sense of identity and camaraderie uh, that allows people to buy into this kind of stuff. You know, I think people once believed America had that same kind of capacity. And obviously, you know, recent history has really tested that proposition. Um, So on the one hand, yes, I think there are some cultural differences. It's a smaller country. 
It's not completely homogenous. A reader reminded me that like 25% of Melbourne's population comes from overseas. You know, there's plenty of diversity there too. Melbourne and Brisbane and Sydney are big, you know, cosmopolitan metropolises with all kinds of people, with all kinds of backgrounds and views. Um, so I don't think we should like paint with too broad a brush talking about the Australians. But at the same time, like there is something in their culture. Uh, that allows them to, at least the vast, vast majority of them, to come together and work together toward a common cause. Uh, and I think we've seen in COVID-19 that it's really hard for America to do the same thing right now. But I don't buy that, like, oh, this is just impossible for red-blooded Americans because, you know, we value our liberty above everything else. Like, we can make sacrifices. We just haven't mustered the ability to do it unfortunately, during this emergency. Dylan Scott, he's a healthcare reporter at Vox.com, where you can find his piece that inspired this episode. It's titled, like this episode, How Melbourne Eradicated COVID-19. I'm Sean Ramos for him. This is Today Explained. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.